friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. to go to God's Word, and may I invite everyone to please rise from their seats. Let's take a look at this time on Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Let's take a look at Revelation 2, 1 to 7. At the count of three, let's all read together aloud, please. One, two, read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning of worship. We thank you for just reminding us that you have a beautiful name, that you are a beautiful Savior. And we thank you, O God, because indeed... In our lives, we have experienced your loving kindness. We have experienced your compassion. We have experienced your favor. We have experienced grace upon grace. And today is no different. And so we thank you for all of that. And we also thank you for the opportunity right now to study your word. And our prayer, O Lord, is that you might speak to us and minister to us in a special way not only corporately, but even individually and personally. I ask for myself, Lord, that I might be your mouthpiece. Go beyond my weaknesses, O God, and speak through me. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech so that I might be able to explain clearly to your people your will for this morning. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, you're aware that we just completed our IPLC or our International Pastors and Leaders Convention. And we had about 420 or 450 people who joined us. And the theme of that particular conference was the seven churches. And I felt that we were able to minister to our people as a result of that conference and that teaching on the seven churches. So I'm going to give you 
uh, insight into what we talked about. And so for the next couple of Sundays, I will be talking about two particular churches that we talked about last uh, IPLC. And that would be the church of Ephesus and the other one would be the church of Laodicea. And for today, we will be talking about the church of Ephesus. And I've entitled this morning's sermon, Three Revelations and Three Prescriptions. Now, if you have not yet realized it, I'm hoping that you get to understand that although the church is composed of blood-bought sinners, it is not perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect church. And there is no such thing as perfect members. There is also no such thing as perfect leaders and a perfect pastor. If you happen to be one person who has been hopping from one church to another, you probably realized by this time that there is no such thing as a perfect church. Now, why is that so? Well, there is one simple reason for that. We still have our indwelling sin nature. Now, it is true that when we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, what happened is we became partakers of divine nature. We received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But mind you, it does not mean that we lost our sinful nature, it is still there. The dominating power or the dominating influence, however, is that divine nature within us. And this is the reason why we can be more than conquerors when it comes to temptations and when it comes to sin. This is also the reason why there has been a radical change in our lives. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so many things have changed with us. But then again, the sinful nature still remains. And as a result of that, there will be frictions. There will be divisions in church. In fact, church work and ministry could actually be messy. It could be messy. I recall what Dr. Ernie Baker said, ministry would be great without people. <laughs> and, well, of course, ministry would be great without people, but without people, there would be no church. Amen? And so, this is something that you and I understand. I mean, there is no such thing as a perfect church. Now, the church of Ephesus is an example of a good church. In fact, if there was a church that I would probably attend, if I were uh, in those centuries, 2,000 years back, I'd probably attend the church of Ephesus because it was a good church. Nevertheless, I would have to say that it was an imperfect church. And one of the things that you and I will discover here is that it was a church that changed over time. Now, time has a way of changing people. Because of varying circumstances, people can actually change. And this is likewise true in the case of this church. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ gave this message, uh, the church had been in existence for about 40 years already. 
So we're talking about four decades of existence. And there were some things that had changed. And one of the things that had changed with them was the quality of their love with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just like the church of Ephesus, we have our own imperfections. Having said that, however, we cannot make that as a lame excuse to remain in our imperfections. Remember what Paul said in the book of Philippians. He says, not that I have obtained perfection, but I press on towards the goal of Jesus Christ. And so we are to press on towards spiritual maturity in spite of our imperfections. Now, in this particular sermon, we will have three takeaways, which I would like to share to you uh, this morning. So let me present to you a little outline. We actually have three points, but let me go to the first point. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, you and I will be talking about the message of Christ to the messenger of Ephesus. And under that, we have three sub-points, all right? First of all would be a threefold revelation of Christ. Three things we need to discover about God. First, He is omnipotent. Number two, He is omnipresent. And thirdly, He is omniscient. And you know what? We need to be able to begin ministry with God. We can't start with man. I will explain that later on. Now, after that, we find a threefold prescription, which is actually very easy to remember. All right? So, three words. All right? I'd like you to repeat after me. First of all, remember. Secondly, repent. And thirdly, say do. All right? So, remember those three words because those would be the three prescriptions. Now we have the threat of judgment in verse 5. And I think probably a better word than threat would be promise. Because God doesn't make threats actually. He makes promises and He keeps them. So we'll talk about that later on. Now let's go to the second major point. Now the second major point is a call to heed the message of Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we need to understand that Christ right now, although He is not present with us, He speaks through the Holy Spirit. So He is speaking to the churches here in verse 7. Now the third and final point is very encouraging. It is the promise of reward to the individual. Now what this tells us also is that you cannot rely on the achievement of the church. We are not rewarded by God corporately, but we are rewarded by God individually. And so let's take note of that. That is found in verse 7. So let's go straight away to the first major point right now. And let me just give you the message of Christ to the messenger of Ephesus. But first of all, a background in relation to Ephesus. Now, I always do this most especially when I introduce a particular letter or I introduce a particular church. And the reason is we will best appreciate what the Bible or what the passage is telling us when we know the contextual background, when we know the historical and cultural background. So allow me to present it to you. Now, Ephesus in modern times is now known as the western portion of Turkey. 
Alright? Now, Turkey used to be called Asia Minor. Alright? So, this is in Turkey right now. The western part of Turkey. Now, it was considered the greatest and the most important city in that particular region. It was also very cosmopolitan. It was a trade center. And I was, as I was studying about this city, somehow I got reminded of Cebu because Cebu right now is very cosmopolitan. It is also a trade center. It is also a very important city. In fact, I think we are claiming to be the tourist capital of the Philippines right now. So there are quite a number of similarities with, uh, with the city of Ephesus. And one of which is, it was the greatest harbor of Asia. It was also the hub of four main roads. Games were also held there in the nature of the Olympics. So there were Olympic-like games that were held there. Politically also, it had become the de facto capital of the province. It was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. The Roman governor actually resided there. It was a self-governed, self-sustaining kind of city. They could survive by themselves. But aside from these things, there was one peculiarity that I think we need to take note of when it comes to the city of Ephesus. It was the location of the great temple of Artemis. By the way, the great temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, who is Artemis? Artemis is the fertility bee goddess, all right? She is the fertility bee goddess. Now, what's quite interesting about this religion is this. Many priestesses, all right, women priests, were involved in cult prostitution. They were involved in cult prostitution. Now, why were they involved in that? Because according to this religion, having fornication or having a sexual relationship with a cult prostitute is a religious experience, all right? They considered it a religious experience. So you can just imagine the kind of perversion and the kind of wickedness that was going on in this particular city, most especially as they considered sex as part of their religion. Heraclitus made mention of this particular city, and he said, listen well, he said the people, the people of the city were only fit to be drowned. The people of the city were only fit to be drowned. And that the reason why he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. Such terrible uncleanness. And somehow, as I was taking a look at the background, I could not help but somehow relate this to my wife and my experience as we went to New York, we were talking to some of our Christian friends there, and they were saying that in New York, every year they have an annual gay parade. 
where some of the people are practically stark naked. In fact, you would find men in their underwear and they would be running in the subway to catch a train. I mean, there's so much uh, liberality or so much freedom that is exercised during those times. You will find men kissing men and women kissing women. So again, we find that this is similar to what was happening actually in Ephesus. Now, the question, of course, is how did God plant a church in such a wicked city? Now, here's where we see the power of God. So let me talk about how the church began. The church, accordingly, had a long history and was actually the most prominent one in that area, in Turkey. The church was founded by three people, a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. You find this in the book of Acts and, of course, also the apostle Paul. Paul had visited in A.D. 53 and about 43 years later, we find this letter in the book of Revelation. So, if you use your mathematics here, you're talking about 43 years had passed after the founding of this church. This large city was probably steered by Paul's message as found in Acts 19, verses 11 to 41. The result actually was twofold. There were conversions, but there was also a riot. There was a riot by the silversmiths because they were in the business of making the shrines of Artemis. And so they felt that Paul was going to destroy their business, which reminds me of two things. One, some people will not accept the Lord because it threatens their business or their means of livelihood. That's why some people would say, well, you know what? I cannot accept the Lord because I'm into bribery or I'm into corruption or I'm doing some crazy things in my business. And so because of that, they refuse to accept the Lord in their lives. Another thing I'm reminded of is what Leonard Ravenhill said. He goes, the anointed preaching of God's word produces two things. One, a riot or a revival. In this case, both things actually happened. There was a riot and there was also a revival. Now, this church had great ministers who ministered to them. I'd call this church a, a super church because Paul ministered in that uh, place for several years. The beloved apostle John, the beloved, likewise ministered in this church for 30 long years, quite a long time. Timothy, the disciple of Paul, was also a resident uh, resident pastor there for a time. So you would say this church was loaded. Quite interestingly, the word or the name Ephesus also means desired. It's desired. And true enough, going back in time, this church was a church that was to be desired because it was a strong church. It was a church that held on to the fine doctrines of the Bible. And yet, of course, as we will find out later on, there was something that was terribly wrong. But let's begin with the threefold revelation of Christ. We find here that in verses 1 to 4 and also verse 6, he is, he is seen here or he is revealed here as omnipotent, 
as omnipresent and omniscient. Now, God begins this letter with a revelation of himself. Because unless we know who God is, we cannot change. A while ago, you heard me mention the fact that we cannot start with people. We need to begin with God. Sadly, the way churches are going right now is they are beginning with people. What happens is they do a survey and they ask people, how do you want the church service to go about? What kind of music would you like? Or what kind of preaching would you like? Or how long would you like the preaching? And so they would ask people about what they wanted the church to become. Now, I think that's the wrong way to start. Now, listen well. Let me give you an analogy. If you were a medical doctor, would you allow your patients to write the prescription? Yes or no? Let me, let me ask you it again, all right? Let me ask you again. If you were a medical doctor... Would you allow your patients to write the prescription? Yes or no? Of course not. You will never allow your patients to write the prescription. And yet, let me just say this. This is exactly what is happening to the modern day church. It is the patients, it is the members of the church that are writing a prescription as to how to go about doing church work. And this is entirely wrong. Why? Because we are flawed. Because we still have our sinful nature. Because we ourselves have a skewed perspective of how to do things. And so it is entirely wrong to begin with people. We need to begin with God. If the church is going to change, if the church is going to create an impact in society, we need to begin with God. And the way it starts is with a revelation of who God is because when you know who your God is, it will radically change your life. Now think about this. If you know certain attributes of God, you always respond to those attributes, right? Look at what one of the, one of the verses of Scripture says to us in 1 John. It says, we love because what? He first loved us. And so our view of God actually changes the way we conduct our lives. So again, here we find that God begins with a revelation of himself. First of all, it is revealed here that Christ is omnipotent. Where do we find that? We find that in verse 1. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, there are some mysterious things here, but let me tell you this. It can be understood. And the way to understand Scripture is very simple. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. In other words, don't guess, don't speculate, but go to the Bible and find out what it means. Now, what do the seven stars here mean? Well, we don't have to guess because if we take a look at chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us that they are the seven angels, all right? The seven stars refer to the seven angels. Now, question, who are the seven angels? 
Now, the Greek word used here for angels is the Greek word angelos. And that Greek word actually means either of two things. Either it refers to an angel, all right, a heavenly being, or it can refer to a human messenger. Now, it is quite obvious based on the context because here we find that Jesus was pointing out what was wrong with the church. It cannot refer to an angel or a divine being. Rather, it refers to a human messenger. And the most logical choice that God would speak to is the pastor. So here I believe what the Bible is talking about here when it speaks about the star, it is speaking about the pastor because he is the one who is the human messenger of God delivering God's word to his people. All right? So, it's very easy to understand. The star here, the star of Ephesus, refers to the pastor. Now, what does God say about the seven stars? It says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. All right? Now, the word hold speaks of a firm grip in the Greek. It's not talking about holding a bottle loosely, but holding it firmly. All right? Now, that, I believe, is, is quite a comfort, most especially to church members. Because why? It speaks about the sovereignty of God over His ministers. So what that is telling us is that God will guide, will lead, will instruct, will mentor those whom He calls into the ministry. And they will do good things for as long as they yield themselves to the Holy Spirit. And so again, that is a great comfort. It is a great comfort that we know that God is the one. It's not the evil one. Christ is the one who is holding on firmly to the pastors and the ministers of God. Now, this also gives us reason to pray for our pastors. At times, we might see or we might be aware of certain weaknesses or certain limitations they might have. And knowing that it is Christ who holds them firmly should be impetus for us to pray and intercede for them so that God might equip them, so that God might empower them, so that God might strengthen them, so that God might sustain them. And when God is able to do that, then our pastors would best be able to serve us in a way that is God-honoring and God-glorifying. So praise God. That the God that we serve is omnipotent. He is almighty. But He is not only omnipotent. The Bible says that Christ is omnipresent. Where do we see that? It says here that He is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the question is, what's those lampstands? What are those golden lampstands? Again, we don't have to guess. All we need to do is go to chapter 1, verse 20, and then we realize that the lampstands here actually represents the churches. So could you say this with me? The lampstands are the churches. All right? So it's talking about the churches. Now it says here that Jesus is the one who walks among the churches. This means that Christ walks in the midst of these seven churches. He is always present in all 
of our churches. Now, friends, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He's in heaven. Physically, He is not with us, but He is still with us through the Holy Spirit. He is omnipresent because He is the second person in the Blessed Trinity. And so while we do not see the Lord Jesus Christ here and now, let us understand that He is walking in our midst. We may not see Him, but He is here together with us. And we should treat God in a holy and reverent manner. When Moses experienced the burning bush, all right, he saw a manifestation of God, the burning bush. What did he hear from God? God said, take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. And we need to have that same attitude when we are gathered together as a church. We need to be mindful of the fact that Jesus Christ walks in our midst. And therefore, we need to treat Him reverently. We need to treat our church services reverently. When we sing songs, we are not to sing of it as if we're just singing, you know, in a karaoke uh, bar or something. We need to be able to sing those songs heartily. We need to be able to sing those songs in a worshipful manner. When we listen to the Word of God, we need to pay attention closely because the pastor is merely a human messenger. God is merely speaking through him, and therefore we need to pay attention to what God has to say because the Word of God, brothers and sisters, does not only, did not only speak for the people of that time, it continues to speak to us even up to today. And what a great comfort to know that our Jesus walks together with us. Amen? What a, what a comfort that is. Amen? And not only that, Christ is omnipotent, Christ is omnipresent, and third thing is Christ is omniscient. Now, where do we see his omniscience? In his commendation of the church of Ephesus. Let's take a look at verses 2 and 3 at this time. It says, I know. That's a phrase we need to highlight here. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. What do we find here? We find a list of the good things that they were doing. And the Lord Jesus Christ was saying, I know. There's nothing we can actually hide from God. Because He knows exactly what you and I are doing. He knows what the church is doing. He knows what you and I are doing as individuals. And once again, this should radically change the way we behave ourselves before God in His church and outside of the church. If we know that God knows everything, shouldn't we be careful in the way we conduct ourselves, in the manner we live our lives? God knows everything. Now, in this particular passage, you will notice that the Lord starts with praises. He knows the good things that you do. Some people may not even notice that. Some people may not even admire the things that you do. But God knows. God knows. And He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. 
when you are interceding and praying for somebody in secret. Nobody knows about that. You're in your prayer closet, but God knows. When you give something to somebody who is in need, perhaps the church will not notice. But mind you, God knows that as well. So here we see the graciousness and the fairness of God. He indeed is a righteous judge. Now let's take a look at the list of good things that they were doing. It says this church had continued in its faithful service for more than 40 years. Now that's a good thing. The word toil, by the way, comes from the Greek word kopos, which means wearisome work. Say wearisome work. I believe this church believed in that dictum which says, I would rather wear out than rust out. This was a church that was hardworking. This was a church that was diligent. This was a church that was probably very much involved in evangelism. They always had activities in church. They always had activities outside the church. And I think we should model our church with this church because they were a hard-working church. And one of the things I believe we should be getting into is we should always be diligent in sharing the gospel to other people. And the question I'd like to be able to ask you, dear brothers and sisters, is have you been active in sharing the gospel to other people? We should take hold of every opportunity that God gives to us. This week, God gave me opportunity once again to share the gospel to an individual. What happened was my wife had, um, had a discipleship session with, with somebody. And so I had to eat alone in a restaurant. And while eating, I was watching a preaching on YouTube. And so when I, when I got the bill, the waiter came over and he became curious and he asked me, Sir, what are you watching? And I said, I'm, I'm watching a preaching uh, on the Bible. And he said, Sir, I'm also very interested in the Bible. And I actually do listen to some preachings on TV. And I said, well, that's good for you. And he began to ask me a lot of questions. And he said, you know what? I believe that we, we have to follow the Ten Commandments, he was saying. I said, yes, of course, we need to follow the Ten Commandments. But I also told him that, do you know that the standard of God is perfection? Do you know that what God wants from us is perfect obedience? And so you probably know that we can never be perfect, I said to him. We can never measure up to what God requires. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. And we simply cannot measure up to the standard of God. And I began to explain to him the reason why Jesus had to come and die for our sins. We needed a Savior because we could not save ourselves. Our good works will not measure up to the standard of God's perfection. That is why the Bible even states that our righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. Quite interestingly, if you take a look at the Hebrew, the original Hebrew of that phrase, filthy rags, it means menstrual cloths. It's what women use when they have their menstruation. That's how our righteous deeds look like in the presence of God. Why? Because our lives are stained and soiled and marred by sin. And because of that, we cannot be accepted by the Father. And I began to explain that to him. 
The only way we can be accepted by the Lord is if the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sins. And that will only happen when we surrender our lives, when we accept Jesus to become our personal Lord and Savior. So I explained that to him. I, didn't, I don't know if he was able to digest everything, but I had to rush my presentation of the gospel because I was afraid customers might come in and we would be disrupted. Anyway, I said to him, do you read books? And he said, yes, sir, I, I read books. If you, will, if, you will, if you will wait for me, I will just go back to my vehicle. I will get the book and I will give it to you. So he said, yes, sir, I will wait for you. And so I went to the, to the vehicle. I got my book, Enough is Enough, and I gave it to him. And so he said, thank you very much, sir. Promise me you will read that book, I said. Yes, sir. Sir, are you the author of this book? <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm the author. And sir, what is your name? Well, it's there, Mel Caparos. That's me. So promise me you will read it. So the point, brothers and sisters, is we need to be active in doing that. And, and there are opportunities. People will ask us questions. They will, they will strike a, a friendly conversation with us. And we need to look at them as divine appointments. Appointments whereby we can share the gospel to them in the hope that they too might make Jesus their personal Lord, Savior, and King. But sometimes we don't do that. In so far as the church of Ephesus was concerned, they were faithfully serving God inside the church and outside the church. We need to model our lives with this particular church. Now, aside from that, we, we see the word perseverance here, which means they were, they were courageous. This is talking about courageous gallantry, all right, which accepts suffering and hardship and loss and turns them into grace and glory. Now, you and I know that people at that time, the Christians were greatly persecuted. Some of them lost their properties. Some of them were even ravished. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were beheaded. Some, were, some of them were thrown into a coliseum to fight against wild beasts. And yet, you know what? This church was not intimidated. Not only did they endure persecution, it seemed like they were enjoying it. They considered it a privilege to suffer for the sake of the name of the Lord. Now, what a wonderful church this is. Not only that, it says here, they were putting to the test whom? They were putting to the test those who were false apostles. And right now, we have a lot of false apostles. Right now, the one in Davao City, what a great false apostle he is. And right now, he's claiming more things. He's claiming that he owns the earth. Can you imagine? This Apollo Kiboloi says that he owns earth. And that God has taken his name. And that he has taken the name of the Father. Previous to that, he made the a blasphemous statement when he said, I and the Father are one. Now, how do you know he's a false prophet? Well, it's very easy to spot a false prophet because false prophets will draw people after themselves. They will not turn people to God. 
the Bible is very clear in the book of Acts. It says there that men will arise from among you, even from Christendom. Men will arise from among you and they will draw disciples after themselves. So instead of making people followers of God, they become followers of men. That's how you know that this person is a false prophet. And sadly, millions upon millions of people are following him, including foreigners. People from the United States, people from Russia, people from all over. Some of them have even transferred their residence to Davao City. Because according to Apollo Kibuloy, Davao right now is the new Jerusalem. So the church of Ephesus was a strong church. They put to the test these false apostles. Now, this speaks of their doctrinal orthodoxy and their strict adherence to it. Now, by implication, the fact that there are false apostles tells you one thing, that Satan is at work. The Bible is very clear. It says, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. This is always present in the church. If, if Christ is present, in the churches, well, Satan is also moving around from church to church. Every Sunday, he is an attending. In fact, he has outdone some of us. Because some of us absent ourselves on Sunday, Satan is always there. All right? And what he's doing there, he's doing there to, he, what is he doing there? He's, he's in, in church to destroy the church, to mess up the church. That's what he's trying to do. Now take a look at verse 6 at this time. There were other problems that were taking place. There were groups that were trying to penetrate the church. Look at verse 6. It says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now who were the Nicolaitans? This was a cult-like group claiming to be Christian, but still showed devotion to the emperor, emperor by burning incense to the image of the emperor. So we're talking about religious syncretism here. They were worshiping Jesus as they claim, but they were also worshiping the Roman emperor. They also practiced libertine behavior. They had what was called free love. This doctrine states that whoever, listen well, Whoever committed fornication will have peace on the eighth day. Let me say it again. They believe that whoever committed sexual fornication will have peace on the eighth day. Now, this tells you how the culture had somehow penetrated this group. All right? They exercised libertine behavior. Way back in the mid-1980s, there was a group here that called themselves children of God. But they were very far from being children of God. They actually practiced what they called free love. And they would hold spiritual retreats. They would set up tents in the mountains. And guess what they would do? They would exchange spouses. They would, they would do wife swapping and husband swapping. And they would engage in, in sex with 
another person's spouse or another person's wife or another person's husband. And they call themselves children of God. They are far from being children of God. They're children of the devil, obviously. But here's the reason why they were doing that. They said it's biblical because the Bible says love one another. So if since I love my brother, I will share my wife to him. Since I love my sister, I will share my husband. Uh, I will share my husband to her. I mean, it's crazy. It's cute. It's perverse. It's wicked. But then again, this is the kind of thing that happens with groups like this. That's why, friends, there are so many false preachers and false apostles. Etymologically, the name Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. This, this is probably talking about clerical hierarchy. And one of the things you will notice with these leaders is they're very authoritative. They lead their groups like a despot. They lead their groups like a dictator. All right? And that's the reason why they get away with certain things. Now, you will notice here that the Lord hates the deeds and not the person in this particular passage. And basically, what is this telling us? That God is ready to forgive. If people are willing to repent of their sins, God is willing to forgive. Now, one other good thing about this church was that they had not grown weary. In other words, they never quit. This was a church that did not give up. And again, this is something that is worthy of emulation. We need to imbibe this in our Christian or in our church culture that we should be people who never give up. We should be relentless in the pursuit of holiness. We should be relentless in the pursuit of spiritual maturity. We should be relentless in the pursuit of souls coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So this was a good church so far. It seems good, but, but, let's go to the rebuke. Take a look at verse 4. What does verse 4 say? Verse 4 reads, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, if you take a look at the Greek here, it's quite interesting. It is emphatic in the Greek. Literally, it could be translated this way. Your first love, you have left. So you will notice the emphasis here is on their first love. Your first love, you have left. And we're not talking about an accidental desertion. We're talking about an intentional one. They really deserted the Lord. They intentionally left their first love. And friends, you and I know when, when our love for God is no longer there. What does the first commandment say? The first commandment says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let me say this. Anything less than that is actually sin. You and I know when we are no longer in love with God because we notice there are differences that have taken place. When we read the Bible, for example, 
we no longer read it with, with a desire for God to speak to our hearts. Rather, we read it only as a matter of obligation. We are not there to find out how God is speaking to us or how God wants to change us. We're just reading it. Maybe we're reading it as a matter of duty, as a matter of obligation, not as a matter of privilege. And we're no longer wanting for God to communicate to us. When we pray, it's no longer the same. Previously, probably, when we pray, I mean, we're very alert. Our, 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 our focus on God is fixed. And yet probably right now, our mind is straying away in different places. It's no longer the same. When we come to church, we're no longer, we're no longer uh, passionate about singing to the Lord. We're no longer passionate about listening to God's Word. We know that something has changed. Now, isn't this true when it comes to our marriage relationships? Sometimes, you know, a while ago, I was, uh, I was driving the vehicle up here, and I noticed a couple who attends our Cebuano service. And I noticed something peculiar because I've been noticing this. And I, what I've noticed is the man was walking ahead, and the wife was at the back. And, and, and isn't this what happens sometimes in our marriage relationships? When we are courting our wife, the, the, the woman is in front and we're pursuing the woman. All right? When she says yes to you, you're walking side by side. After some years of marriage, she's already walking behind. It's no longer the same. You know when the passion is no longer there. You know when romance is no longer there. And, and you know what? We need to nurture, we need to cultivate that relationship. If our marriages are going to be beautiful marriages, if our marriages are going to be successful marriages, if our marriages are going to be happy marriages, then we've got to nurture that relationship. We've got to keep on falling in love with our spouses over and over again. My wife didn't hear this yesterday. I'm, I'm letting her hear this right now. You know, this is the truth. You know, I'm, I'm madly in love with my wife. She doesn't know this, but sometimes when she's sleeping, I'm staring at her. And I'm saying to myself, God, I love this woman. Really. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to pull your leg. That's the truth. And I think, I think if, if that should be true in our marriage relationship, that should even be more true when it comes to our relationship with God. Amen? For after all, He is our creator. He is our savior. And He is our king. And you know what? Since we have been made in the image of God, God possesses the same things we possess. Possess. He has a mind, He has a will, and He has emotions. And you know what? When I was reading this passage, when it says, Your first love you have left, I could just, I could just feel the hurt and the pain in the heart of God. 
This is talking about an inner betrayal of a prior relationship with Christ. This was a betrayal which was a matter of the heart. They loved God but no longer with the same intensity. And right now, I'd like to make this personal. I'd like to make personal application to us. Let me ask you this question. How is your love meter with God? How is your love meter with the Lord? How does it measure up? On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you still love God honestly, sincerely, in your heart? Do you still love Him the the same way you used to? Or have certain things changed already? Friends, it should not change. This rebuke contrasts with what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church 35 years earlier in Ephesians 1, 15 to 16, when he was commending them for their faith. And faith in, in Ephesians chapter 1 should be taken broadly as speaking about the entirety of their Christian life. So in other words, they were loving God. They were serving God. They were worshiping God. But you know what? Some things change over time. And friends, let me just appeal to you, brothers and sisters. If you want a, a life that is filled with satisfaction, you have no other option but to continue loving God with all your heart. Now, since about 40 years had passed since the planting of this church, probably we're also talking about second-generation believers in, in Ephesus. That's why I'm really worried about the next generation in this church. I am praying that the second generation will have the same passion of the first generation, the same passion for prayer, the same passion for the Word of God. Because, friends... If you and I somehow lose the next generation, I think eventually living word might not be the living word that it used to be. And I hope it will not happen. There's a Chinese proverb that says, the grandfather starts, the father finishes, the son destroys. Let me say it again. There's wisdom there. The grandfather starts, The father finishes, the son destroys. Most definitely, I'm praying that will not happen in our case. Christ wants believers' hearts as well as their hands and their heads. This verse indicates to us that we are not just to serve God, but to serve Him out of a deep love. We can do the right thing with the wrong heart. We can do certain things and... From the outside, it might appear that we're all right. But deep down inside, we could be drying up. Something might be wrong. We might, be, we might have dry wells inside our hearts. I like what Vance Havner said. He said, people can be just as straight as a gun barrel theologically, but as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. Let me say it again. People can be just as straight as a gun barrel theologically, but as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. So again, friends, let us be mindful. Let us check our hearts and let's ask ourselves, do I still love God the way I used to? And if not, then friends, 
Remember this. God has divine knowledge over everything in the church. God knows the reality of the church's loyalty to Him despite outward appearances. So, now that we know, now that Jesus made this diagnosis of the church, what then is the prescription of the greatest doctor of all time, Jesus Christ? Well, let's take a look at the threefold prescription. Do you still remember the three words? Can you say it with me? Could you say it louder, please? For the last time. Now, if you check this in the Greek, you will observe something. It is imperative in the Greek. Now, what does that mean? It means all of these are commands. We're not being, good, being given good advice by the Lord Jesus Christ here. This is not good advice. This is a commandment. And what is God saying here in verse 5? It says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So let's go to the first word that we mentioned a while ago, remember. The Greek word here is in the present tense. It means keep on remembering. Don't forget, keep on remembering. The point of our fall must be the point where we should rise again. Remember I mentioned to you, general confession does not work. When you confess to God, Lord, just forgive me of all the sins that I've committed today, that won't work. Or if you say, Lord, if I have sinned to you the past week or the past month or the past year, may all of those sins be forgiven, that won't work. The Bible says you need to remember. You need to remember where you have fallen. Because when you remember where you have fallen, you will be able to confess specifically and you will be able to repent specifically as well. Now, if you simply make general confessions to God, the question is, what do you repent of? Amen? What do you repent of? You may not even know what to repent of. But if you remember specifically where you have gone wrong, where you have fallen short, then you will know what to do. You will know how to turn away from sin. Now, the, repent, the word repent here is in the aorist tense. It's talking about a sharp break with evil. Now, some people take a slow break from evil. That won't work. Some people say, well, you know what, Pastor? I, I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. I'm just going to taper it down as time goes on. So next week, I'm going to go one pack only. And then the following week, Pastor, I'll, do, I'll just do four, four sticks. And then, Pastor, the next week, the final month, I'll probably take two sticks, Pastor. And then on the, on the second month, I will totally abstain. You know what? Let me just tell you this. That won't work. The aristance here is saying you need to make a sharp break. You need to become cold turkey, so to speak. You need to withdraw immediately. From whatever vice or sin or bondage you are in. This is exactly what, what the force of this Greek is saying to us. There needs to be a sharp break from evil. Let me ask you this question. 
Are you making a sharp break from evil? You need to do that. What is the problem that you have right now? Is it in, in the area of patience? Is it in the area of lust? Is it in the area of covetousness? Is it, is it in the area of anger? Whatever it is, pride? Well, you need to make a sharp break from that. And that's how you repent. And then it says, do. Do the deeds you did at first. You need to remember, what was I doing before that was causing me to fall in love with Christ? When you talk about your marriage relationship, what were you doing before that made you fall in love with your wife? Keep on doing those things. And we need to, to do the same thing when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. Now, here's the threat, or I would say the promise of judgment. If and when you and I do not heed the word of God, here's what verse 5 tells us. It says, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, the phrase or the word remove here does not refer to loss of salvation. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is not talking primarily to individuals. He is talking to the church. So, he is talking about removing the light of their witness and their church being extinguished by God. Let me say it again. It is talking about removing the light of their witness and their church being extinguished by God. Remember we mentioned the lampstand here refers to the church? So you can actually replace the word lampstand here with the word church. And this is how it will read. Let me read it again. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your church. All right? I will remove your church out of its place unless you repent. A church that has lost its first love is a dying church. No church, no matter how great, no matter how strong, is indispensable. God can remove that church. Question, did this actually happen in history? Well, let me tell you what happened in history. This threat actually took place, which means the church did not really repent, or if they did, it did not last long. The church was the scene of a major church council. But after the 5th century, both the church and the city declined. The immediate area has been uninhabited since the 14th century. The water that flowed, uh, flowed down the Keister River kept pulling up silt until there was no harbor in that city. Today... The city is now wrapped in the mantle of Islam. Today, the city is now wrapped in the mantle of Islam. Church of Ephesus, strong church, powerful church, now it's gone and in place would be Islam. Let me tell you what's happening in UK right now. In the United Kingdom right now, a lot of people have become either agnostics or atheists. You talk to the British people, the local people, a lot of them no longer believe in God. In fact, if you visit some of their churches, 
they will, you will find nice cathedrals. There's this particular cathedral. Um, was it in Wales? Anyway, I saw this cathedral wherein the stones were taken, actually were quarried from Scotland. And they were very nice stones. It's an empty church. Sometimes you come to a church like this, it would be full of old people. No more young people. The young people are watching football. Many of the church buildings have been sold. For example, one church building I know was, became a warehouse. Another church building became uh, a place for ballroom dancing. But you know what? Worse than that, I actually saw a church building. It still had a cross, but it was already a strip tease bar. I mean, think about that. A church building, the cross is still there. It's a strip tease bar where naked women are dancing. That's blasphemy. But that's exactly what is happening in England right now. And right now, it's being populated by Muslims. And this is what the Muslims say about Great Britain. In 50 years' time, the predominant religion in Great Britain will be Islam. And you know what? At the rate it is going, I think it's going to happen. One of the things that Muslims do, you know, um, in, in Great Britain is they would buy the corner property. They would buy this property and they would buy this property. Neighbors will start leaving and they would replace it with Muslim communities or Muslim families until the entire block is actually Muslim. They're building mosques in practically every city in England right now. So friends, what is happening to England was exactly what happened to the church of Ephesus. This is what happened to Turkey. God doesn't make threats. He makes promises. He will remove our witness when we have become useless to God. And that's why my prayer to God is, Lord, help us. Help the second generation. Help the third generation. Help the fourth generation, Lord. Help us, O oh God. Because we do not know what's going to happen in the future. So here we find a call to heed the message of Christ through the Holy Spirit. So I mentioned to you, Christ now speaks through His Spirit to the churches. We find this in verse 7. It says, He who has an ear. How many here have ears? Okay. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says, now here's the interesting part. You would think, says to the church of Ephesus. You would think that that's the next thing. No, it's not, not saying church of Ephesus. Notice it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to what? The churches. So this was not just a message to the church of Ephesus which was written about 2,000 years back in time. No, this is a message for the churches, for all generations, for all time. This is God's message for us. 
God is speaking to us and God is saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. So we need to pay attention to what God has been saying all along in this sermon. Now there are three kinds of hearers. The first one is those without ears. We're talking about those who are not believers. They don't have the ears to listen to God's word. There are those who are dull of hearing. We're talking about backslidden Christians. Remember we talked about backsliding a few Sundays ago? They're, they're the, they are those who are dull of hearing. And there are those who are spiritually minded. They are spiritually mature. They embrace the teaching of God. And here we find that the Spirit of God is active. In the churches. He's here right now. Do you know that the Holy Spirit all throughout this sermon has been speaking to you? Do you know that while we were singing songs a while ago, the Spirit of God was speaking to you? Do you know that while I speak right now, it is not I who speak, but it is the Spirit of God speaking to you right now. So friends, let us listen to the Holy Spirit at all times. And when we listen to the Holy Spirit, we will never go wrong. Do the opposite, however. We're done. We're finished. We're dead meat. But here's an encouragement. Let's go to the promise of the reward to the individual, which tells us you cannot rely on the achievement of the entire church. You cannot say, Lord, I belong to a good church. Now, in this case, in verse 7, he will reward us individually, not corporately. It says here, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, question, who are these people who overcome? And second question is, is this teaching salvation by good works? You and I know if we are going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, the Bible does not teach salvation by good works. We're saved by faith alone through the grace that was given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this does not speak about salvation by good works. So how do we interpret the word overcome? Well, all you need to do is let Scripture interpret Scripture. And what you need to do is go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. And what does it say? It says there that he who is born of God or born again overcomes the world. In other words, what this is saying is that those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God will grant to us to eat of the tree of life. Christ is the absolute source and donor of this gift. This is the gift of eternal life. So if you're born again, if you're a child of God, if you're a son and daughter of God, you are assured of eternal life. When you die, you know exactly where you are going. What Adam lost was regained in Christ. And where shall you go? The Bible says, in the paradise of God. Actually, the Persian word actually means park or garden. But if you go to the book of Revelation, near the close of the book of Revelation, I believe this actually refers to the new Jerusalem, which will be suspended in space, which will be part of heaven. 
And that will be where we shall be for the rest of eternity. Amen. So praise be to God. So let me just close by saying this. Here's my prayer. My prayer is if you have lost your first love, I pray that you will go back to it. There's no better place in the Christian life but to be in the place of your first love. Amen? Go back. Go back to your first love. Give the Lord a big hand, please.